Well, good morning, everybody. It's my privilege to introduce our preacher for today. Well, actually, it was a fun weekend. This is this is one of my very best friends in the world, Pastor Peter On, and so um, he got to come in and hang out at my place for the weekend, and we did all the things we love doing. Usually, I go visit him in New York, New Jersey area, and um, a, a great night for us is always go out for a good dinner and go see stand-up comedy. That's where we get most of our material for preaching. So we did that here. This comedy's not as good in Chicago as in New York, but it's pretty good. And um, so we did that and had a lovely weekend together. But as you know in our profession, it's unusual to be able to get somebody to leave their church on a Sunday and be with us. But uh, Pastor Peter's able to stay for this weekend. So I'm thrilled about that. I'm glad to introduce you to one of my very good friends. But I'm also thrilled to just introduce you as a pastor. Um, our journeys have been, we didn't know each other when we each started our respective churches, but it's amazing how closely together they are. Uh, age-wise, I turned 50, as you know, this past summer. Peter turns 50 next month. Um, uh, we started our church, uh, what we what, what we celebrated the 20th anniversary of our first service last September. They celebrate the 20th anniversary of their first service in like a month or two. And so um, right, right along on the same timelines, real similar vision. Um, he's Korean American, I'm white, so different in that respect, but multicultural churches that are in a neighborhood that's got um, kind of a lot of generational poverty and kind of mixing all those things together. So. They're like 20 times bigger than us. But other than that, it's a super similar um, kind of a vibe. So I've always deeply appreciating and going to be with them. They're just on the other side of the George Washington Bridge in New York, on the New Jersey side. Metro Community Church is called. Really cool church. I love it. And uh, I don't want to steal this one. I don't know what this introduction was going to be. But the subject matter is one that's close to my heart. Where it's hard, it, you don't always hear the subject of emotional health and emotional awareness in church. Man, you should, right? Um, we have both been deeply influenced by you know one of the one of the voices that has really shaped this important conversation within church spaces is Pete Gazzaro, who has now handed it off to Rich Velotis. A lot of y'all know him. He's preached here before. Um, they're in Queens, New York, where they kind of started this movement called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And one of the things Pete Gazzaro often says is you just cannot think about Christian discipleship, Christian spirituality, without also thinking about emotional health and emotional awareness. And Peter and I share in the stories, Pastor Peter and I share in the stories of growing up around unhealthy pastors. Anybody ever heard of a pastor who's theologically wise but emotionally unhealthy? It's a doozy. It's a doozy when somebody knows the Bible well but is emotionally unhealthy. Um, so it's not only pastors who need this. It's all of us who need this. But we've experienced firsthand what happens when you're on the other end of that. Fortunately, he and I are like super aware and super healthy. So um, uh, we're, we're on the front end. Yeah, that, that would be a very unhealthy thing to say. But anyway, I need to quit, quit talking. I mostly want you to hear from him. So it's a, it's a great subject. I'm really glad you get to meet him. So we give a super, super warm welcome to Pastor Peter on. Thanks, bro. Well, good morning. Just uh, when I first met Daniel, we have a mutual friend, and his name is Dr. Brenda Salton-McNeil, and when I first met him at her house, do you guys know he looks like a celebrity? You know? You guys ever think he looks like someone? I've mentioned this multiple times, but I used to be a huge New Kids on the Block fan back in the day, uh, and so when I first saw him, I'm like, man, you look just like Jordan Knight. And so, like, I would always kind of make fun of him about that. I'm like, you actually walk like him, too. So anyway, uh, but Daniel and I have been friends for a very long time. A tremendous amount of respect for him. You're all really blessed to have a pastor like him. And, uh, you know, he didn't tell me to say this, but I, I want to. Because I like to do this with my friends who I really do love and care for. Uh, treat him well. There aren't too many great pastors like him. And, uh, yeah. People of my, our profession are dropping like flies right now. Um, and part of that is because of their own issues that they struggle with, I think. We'll get to that today. But also, I th also think it's 
sometimes uh, the love they receive from their church is quite anemic. And so because of that, they often really struggle. And so I just want you to just encourage you guys, treat your pastor well and the staff. And so, yeah, I just want to just share with you a little bit about my life, if that's okay. And he, Daniel just kind of shared a little bit about what I want to talk to you about. But uh, I started Metro Community Church about 20 years ago. And uh, I'm, I'm a typical church planter, type A personality. Usually church planters have this type A personality. And back when I was dreaming about Metro while I was in seminary, um, I really believed in my heart that Metro Community Church was not only going to be the biggest church in New Jersey, I, didn't, I even believed it was going to be more than just the biggest church in the country. I believe that Metro Community Church is going to be the biggest church in the world. God had to deal with my grandiosity. I mean, it was sinful, right? And there was something so deep about that. The desire that I had to want to have a huge church to prove to the world that I'm good. There was something deeply dysfunctional about that. And because of that, I worked myself to death. The first five years of our church, it was the hardest five years. And when I got to the fifth year, I realized that Metro is not going to even be the biggest church in the state. It's not going to be the biggest church in the county. I just felt like a failure. It was not growing. There was some issues that were happening in the church. And so what I did to sort of compensate for that reality that I'm a failure is I actually traveled about twice a month to different parts of the country and spoke at different conferences, different churches. I mean, if you sent me an email and said, I'd like to invite you to come and speak, I would say, yes, it didn't matter. I just want to get away from home so I could focus on other things and sort of deal with sort of this feeling that I had that I was a failure. My poor wife, I was married to her and she felt like a single mom because I was not there for the children. They, she was taking care of them. She never really complained to me because she felt in her heart that I was doing the work of God. So how could she complain that I wasn't being a good husband nor a good father? And so she kept silent for so many of those years. And I was struggling. When I came home from the different traveling schedules that I had, I would always go out and do church ministry. I was never home. It was such a burnout the first five years. And I never will forget this day. Now, for, you don't, for those who don't know, I'm a second career pastor. I actually worked in the marketplace for about four years when I graduated from college. And so when God called me to be a pastor, I just fell in love with the church while I was, at, while I was working in the marketplace. It was such a profound gift for me. I humbly accepted, accepted it. But when this moment, this specific day in our church, it was about year five. I had spent the weekend doing a leadership retreat for the people that I was discipling at the church. I didn't want to do it. It was a place called the Poconos, kind of in a country area up in Pennsylvania. And we spent two and a half days there. I didn't want to do it because I was so burnt out, but I did. And God moved so powerfully. I was amazed by what he did. I didn't want to be there, but yet he did something really powerful. And then I got up on Sunday morning about 3 o'clock in the morning, put the finishing touches to my sermon, drove about two hours to our church, and we're a portable church, and so we meet in a school. I helped set up the church because I like to be on the setup team. I preached two sermons, went home, grabbed a quick bite to eat, and then at 4 o'clock we had a newcomer's connections class, dinner we call it, and people from the, from people from the church came to my house, and I just shared with them what Metro is about, hoping that maybe they would join the church. After that was over, we had dinner. They left about 7, 7.30. At 8 o'clock, I went up to my office. I did some marriage counseling with a couple at our church. By the time it was over, it was probably about 9.30, 10 o'clock, and as I was walking to my car from the parking lot, I said these exact words, I want to die. I don't want to live anymore. 
The calling to be a pastor was such a gift to me when he called me. But at that moment, it had become a curse in my life. And I didn't know what to do. My elders saw how unhealthy I was. And so they said, Peter, you're going to go on a sabbatical for three months. And I said, I can't do that. I mean, like, if I go on a sabbatical, the church is not going to survive. And they said, we're not asking you. We're actually ordering you to do it. You need to take some time off. And so kicking and screaming, I went on a sabbatical. I didn't want to go, but I did. And for the first month, it was almost like me going into like a rehab center. I had to detox myself from ministry. It was hard. And then in the second month, I decided to go visit some churches because I wasn't allowed to go to Metro. So I visited some churches. And Daniel mentioned that I went to Peace Cazero's church. It was called New Life Fellowship Church in Queens. And I brought a book. He wasn't there. Uh, Rich was speaking, but he wasn't there. So I brought his book, not really knowing what it was about. I read the book, and I was this. It really felt like he wrote it for me. He really wrote it for me. Every page in there, I just thought, how does this guy know me? And at that moment, I went back after my sabbatical, and I realized I had to do some deep, deep change in my life. And it was this journey of my life that I've been on for, uh, I would say, about 15 years. And uh, I'm just so grateful for it. And one of the major things he talks about in his book, he talks about an iceberg. And can we just show the picture of an iceberg? Yeah, there we go. That is actually an actual picture of an iceberg. That's not CGI. It's not Photoshopped. But that is actually an actual picture of an iceberg. And when you look at an iceberg above the surface, you really only can see 10% of that iceberg, right? And that's, a, and that's 10%. But when you look at under, below the surface, you'll see that there's a 90% of the iceberg that's there that is not visible to the naked eye. And so the reality is that's very indicative of our life. It's very indicative of your life and my life because what we really focus on is that 10% that everyone can see. And so work on our appearance. We all got up. Most of you combed your hair. You brushed your teeth. You, you know, you made sure you look presentable in public. You do that. Some of you have really, you work on your personality. Some of you have flamboyant personalities. I mean, you can go into a room and you can light it up because of your personality, because of your humor, because of your charm, things like that. A lot of us, you know, as we're getting older, there are things that we start thinking about and we start thinking about, do I need to get some type of surgery to look younger and different things like that. That is the stuff that we love to focus on, but beneath the surface, that 90% that's below us that nobody really can see, that is the stuff that we don't really talk much about. And so emotionally healthy spirituality is really about, can we start impacting and touching and getting into that 90%? And that's the sort of journey that I've been on. And what I realized 15 years ago was that I had lived my entire life never really focusing on that. And so as a result of me just want to focus on that 10%, I kind of ran a real slippery slope of depression, of anger, of shame, and you can just name it. The list goes on. And what I've realized over time is that there are two different types of Christians when you go through a hard time. Because that 90%, no one can really see it. You don't even notice it that you have these issues. The only time it arises is when you're struggling or you're going through a conflict in life. When the you-know-what hits the fan, then you start to realize, why am I doing these things? You don't really notice it. And what I realized with Christians, I've noticed that Christians who are struggling with being emotionally healthy, there are usually two ways they respond when they're going through a difficult season of their life. The first way in how Christians respond is that many times they'll blame God for their misfortunes and for the for the struggles that they're going through in life. And so a lot of times, because of that blame, many of them will just kind of walk away from their faith in God. But then the second type of Christians, you know what they do when they go through a real difficult time? They get more spiritual. And they end up using the Holy Spirit like a drug. 
like a narcotic. And if they don't get their fix every day of the Holy Spirit, they fall into deep depression and they become the worst versions of themselves. And that was me. That was me. And so what I want to do today is that as you guys are in this series talking about practices, I want to talk about the three key practices that an emotionally unhealthy person will say no to. All right? And I want to ask yourself, if you're going to be honest, this could be a real, I think, a very significant day for you. Do you say no to these three things? All right? Because if you do say no to these three things, then you're very similar to, the, like, to King Saul. You guys know who King Saul is? He's the very first king of Israel. If you know the story about Israel a little bit, Israel wanted a king. God said, but I, you have a king, me. Israel said, well, we want to be like all the other nations, so can you give us a human king? God said, okay, we'll give you one. And so he said, hey, Samuel, can you go find a king? So Samuel goes and he finds Saul. Saul looks like the perfect king. He's tall. He's got the physical dexterity of a king. He looked good. So he puts oil on his head. He goes, you are now the king of Israel. God is with them. Saul is encountering God in the beginning. He's going into battle. God has given him victory over different nations. And then sort of in the midway of his career as king, Samuel goes to Saul and says, hey, God says now you are to pay back what the Amalekite nation has done to our people during the exodus. And so now this is payback time. So here are the specific directions from God. You have to go to war with the Amalekite nation, and you will have victory. God promises it. But you got to kill every living creature being in the Amalekite nation. That is your direct order. You must obey this. Saul says, got it. He goes into war. What happens? God gives him victory. But then what happens is that he decides to spare the life of King Agag, and then he also decides to spare the lives of these animals that were worth a lot of money that his men wanted. He had disobeyed God. And what I want to pick up from is in this passage in 1 Samuel 15, because I want you to see how oblivious Saul is. Up until this point, he has no idea he disobeyed God. He actually thought he was. And so when Samuel goes to him and says, you have disobeyed God, look at how he responds in verse 20. Samuel, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15, verse 20. He says, but I did obey the Lord. Saul said, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to me, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbors, which is, you guys know is David, to one better than you. This is the word of God. Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer? So Lord, we just come to you, and we just ask you that you would help us to make deep sense of this passage, but most of all, God, that there might be some here today where they've never explored the 90% of their humanity because of possible trauma and pain they've gone through in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully through your word today and that you would give us the courage, the strength, and that we would feel empowered to embrace the totality of our humanity today, Lord, not just the 
but the 90% that often people don't see. And so, God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and I pray that the meditation of all of our hearts in this room will indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. Uh, one of the things we learned here in this passage is this. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is actual disobedience, right? Because that's exactly what Samuel is convicting Saul of. He's like, I did obey the Lord. He goes, no, no, you partially obeyed the law, but at the, uh, you obeyed God. But at the end, it's disobedience. So partial obedience is actually disobedience. And what we see here with Saul is that we see really what an emotionally unhealthy person will often say no to these three key practices that I want to talk to you about. The first thing is this. An emotionally unhealthy person will say no to the practice of reflection and self-awareness. An emotionally unhealthy person will often say no to the very practice of reflection and self-awareness. Now, you, you, you'll probably say, what, what are you talking about? I just want to ask you, do you actually spend time reflecting? Or do you actually spend time trying to grow in greater self-awareness? Because Saul doesn't. He has no idea. He, he's not going to reflect what he has done. In fact, that's why when Samuel came to him, he had no idea that he was disobeying God. He actually believed that he was. He was completely oblivious that he had disobeyed God. Listen, if you and I want to have a healthy relationship with God and with other people, we actually have to learn to have a healthy relationship with ourselves first. I don't know if you know that, but you have been mandated by God to have a healthy and a loving relationship with yourself first. Love the Lord your God, the great commandment, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as who? yourself right yourself right and so what is needed first really if you want to have a healthy relationship with God and with other people you got to first have a healthy relation with yourself you got to start asking the question why am I like this when I don't get a raise and my friend who at work gets a raise why am I like this when all of a sudden I see a single person dating and getting married why am I getting so jealous and angry because I'm not married yet why am I getting like that why am I getting angry when somebody in this church maybe has been elevated to leadership before me when I am trying to grow in my own leadership? Why do I get so angry when my kids do things that I don't want them to do? What's really going on here? You see, this practice of growing in self-awareness, it really is about you and I dedicating ourselves to becoming a student of our life. And that's the journey I had to take 15 years ago. I had to take a journey of becoming a student of my life. I had to learn, why am I like this when I'm struggling in my life? And that was something I've never asked myself. And what I realized is this, like, like us Saul, if you and I do not practice self-awareness and reflection, what we are going to inevitably do over the course of our life is that we're going to live our lives for the approval of other people. That's the challenge, right? That is a challenge, and that is a terrible place to be when you're living your life for the approval of other people, and that's exactly what Saul did. Why did Saul spare the life of King Agag? Why did he do that? Because he wanted the other kings to look favorably upon him. If he killed King Agag, they would not approve of him. But he wanted to be seen as a compassionate person so that if he spared his life, the other kings would not be angry with King Saul. Why did he also allow the soldiers to keep these animals? Because he wanted their approval. And here's what happens when you and I live a life of approval, wanting the approval of other people. What happens over time is that we live in fear. 
Fear and approval, longing for the approval of other people, they're synonymous. They go hand in hand. So if you and I are longing for the approval of other people, and I think all of us should have some level of a desire to want have to be approved by some people, but it shouldn't be an idol of ours. When it becomes an idol, then what happens is that fear is the other emotion that oftentimes, oftentimes captivates us. And that's exactly what Saul was going through. Look at what it says in verse 24 again. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Saul's the king. He said he was afraid of his soldiers. Just think about, take a step back and think about that for a second. He's the king. They should be afraid of him. But it was the other way around. Why? Because he longed for their approval. And because he longed for their approval, he was afraid of them. It happens to every single one of us. That when we long for the approval of other people, we end up living in fear because we feel like we're not going to get that approval and we begin to struggle. And so what happens over time is that when you're living your life for the approval of other people, you sort of create this imposter. You put on a mask. You pretend to be somebody that you're not because you want to be approved. And I'm here to tell you right now, Jesus didn't come to die for the fake you. He came to die for the real you. Warts and all. And if you and I are not willing to grow in self-awareness, you will not know the person whom which Jesus came to die for. I'm realizing this as I'm getting older. Um, the less self-aware I become, the more destructive I become to the people I love the most. One of the greatest gifts you can give to yourself today is to dedicate your life to growing in greater self-awareness. Because you might look your age. Do I look, do I look 50? I look a bit younger, right? Like, how old do you think I am? I, I mean, you, you know it's 50, but how old do I look? Huh? 35? If I, I have to go home, but if I was here longer, man, I'd take you out for lunch, right? Right. But kind of like we look chrono chronologically our age. But the truth is, emotionally, I can be an eight-year-old. That's the difference. The goal is not for you to look your age. The goal for you is to actually act and have the emotional age of what you are. And what I find over time is it doesn't matter how old you are, sometimes you could still be an eight-year-old little kid emotionally. And what happens over time is that when you live your life for approval and you're living your life in fear all the time, then what's going to happen is what you see what happens to Saul eventually is that you grow in deep jealousy. And when you read the next chapters, you'll find that Saul is so jealous of David, right? Because, you know, uh, not only does Samuel say, hey, I'm giving this kingdom over to the one who's better than you, but the women on the streets were singing a song. They were like, you know what? Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his tens of thousands. Oh, man, Saul did not like that. So what did he try to do? He tried to kill David six times. Three times he threw a spear at him, but he had terrible aim, and he missed every time, Right? Other times, he would put him up in the front lines in a war, hoping that he'd get killed because that was the most you know, vulnerable place, but yet he didn't. He even went as far as to say, and he did this, he said, David, go into battle. I want you to kill 200 Philistines by yourself. Bring back their foreskin. If you do that, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. That's how jealous he was. It just overwhelmed him, and he was suffering so much as a result of it. And he actually had to give his daughter in marriage because David killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskin. He's totally unaware of all the stuff that's going on in his life. 
And I'm here to tell you that a lot of times we're so unaware of all the stuff that's going on in our own lives too. I mean, think about the things that we do sometimes. Think about the things of because we're so afraid, how we respond or how we react in work situations with our bosses and our coworkers and our peers. Think about sometimes the decisions that we make sometimes. You know, like you might have a friend that you really love and care for, and you know they're going the wrong way in life, and you want to share some truth with them, but you don't do it. You hold it in. Why? Because you're afraid that if you share that, they may not like you anymore, and you may not be friends. Parents, think about what we pray for our children. Think about how much we're so fixated on praying for their safety and comfort. How are they going to ever know God in safety and comfort? Why are we praying so much for their safety and comfort? Have you ever asked that question? Right? Some of us, we struggle with that reality. Right? And so there are things that you've gone through perhaps in your life that's oftentimes hijacking your ability to grow deeper and get to know the depth and height and width of God's love for you. It's this idea that you and I are not really growing in a way where we're actually loving ourselves. When I was in seminary, um, we had like a break in class and uh, just a friend, a, a sister in the class during the break, she just asked me like, hey, how do you pray? I was like, oh, well, you know, I was like, I get up in the mornings and I usually spend like, 20, 30 minutes just praying. She goes, oh, that's nice. And I said, well, how, well, how do you pray? And she goes, well, you know, um, I journal my prayers. I write it out. And she said, you know, Peter, you should try it sometime. I said, sister, please. I pray for a long time. I'm not going to sit there and write out my prayers. It's just too much. And she says, try it, Peter, because if you try it, one of the things you're going to discover is that when you pray, like writing out your prayer, you're going to be able to process your emotions better, what you're feeling. I actually tried it. And when I did, I wasn't ready for it. I actually thought I was going to go to hell because of this Pandora's box I felt like I was opening of unresolved emotions. You see, for those of you who don't know, I grew up in a very physically abusive home. My father would come home from work many times drunk. And I can remember as a, as a little child, he would come and, he was an angry drunk, and he would always come with no reason, but just come, and he had to take out his anger and his frustrations on my mother especially, and my sisters and I. I lived with that terror my whole life. And I lived as such a fearful child, and so when I started like letting this stuff out, because up until that point in seminary, nobody knew. I never processed any of that stuff. And when I started processing with God, I actually felt like I was gonna go to hell, because I was so angry with God. But you know what I learned? God was able to handle it. He embraced me for who I was, and he met me in a deep place of that emotional vulnerability and unhealth that I was at. And what I realized is this. You really cannot be in touch with God when you're not in touch with yourself. And that's such a sad thing, because how many times have we approached God's throne, and we sort of like pretend that we're doing okay? We don't really want to share how we're really doing. Many of us, we kind of go to God and we're like lying about how we're feeling as if God doesn't know how we feel about him, as if God doesn't know how we feel about certain people in our lives. And some of us, we Christianize our prayers sometimes when all really God wants is what, you know, David knew in the Psalms, and that's why two-thirds of the Psalms is on lament, is that we can go to God and be honest and completely pour ourselves to him in that way. And so how do we do this? How do we actually grow in self-awareness? I'm going to give you some tips that have helped me so much over the years. The first thing is this. You need to create some time and space for silence in your life. We live in a world where nothing is about being silent. Everything is about noise. 
You have to create a space for yourself. Uh, the, 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 the mystics and the monks call this like a, the daily office. Spending some time, multiple times a day, at least twice, where you're spending a few minutes of silence. If you've never done this, could I encourage you three minutes? Three minutes before you go to work, can you just sit in your car or in your room for two to three minutes and just be silent? Don't say anything. Don't, and you're going to think about crazy stuff. It's okay. All right? Don't get discouraged. Just see that every time your mom wanders away from Jesus, it's another invitation with Jesus saying, come to me. Embrace the light. Don't get discouraged because your mind's thinking about all these different things. You're thinking about if, if Kansas City or Baltimore is going to win today. You know, things like that. It's okay. And I encourage you to do that twice a day if you can. There's some resources. Scazzaro wrote a book called Day by Day. It's a small little book on daily offices. I highly encourage you to do that. All right? The other thing I want to encourage you to do is I want to encourage you to invite people to speak truth into your life. People who know you, people that you know love you and care for you. It could be your friends, okay? It could be your spouse. It should be your spouse if you have a decent relationship because your spouse knows things about you that you don't even know. They see blind spots. Spouse is great. But also it could be your coworkers just saying, hey, listen, can you just share with me and give me some feedback, right? I think it's really, really critical and important for you to invite some people to speak truth into your life. I did that about a, about a year and a half, two years ago. I emailed my elders and I said, listen, I'm going to get together with you all one-on-one. You guys have seen my leadership here. You've seen kind of how I've been doing. I'm going to get together with each of you and I want you to kind of speak truth into my life. Like, it's okay. I know you guys love me, so just truly speak some truth into my life. And so one of my elders, I got together with her and uh, she, she's a counselor and she sat with me and over lunch, and she said, and I said, give it to me. And she goes, you know, Peter, I think you have uh, ADHD. I said, no, I don't. I was like, I don't have ADHD. She goes, no, I really think you have ADHD. I was like, no, no, no. I was like, Lisa, I don't have ADHD. She said, yes, you do. I was like, no, I don't. You have ADHD. <laughs> I was so angry that she would say or accuse me of having ADHD. I was really upset with her. I got in my car after lunch. I was really angry, but as I was driving home, I said, man, that would explain so many things about me. <laughs> it really would explain so many things about me. And she recommended that I go see a psychiatrist and get evaluated. And so I did. I have ADHD. <laughs> I have ADHD. My other elder said to me, she said, how do you think your staff handles the fact that you play favorites? I was like, I don't play favorites. She goes, you play favorites. Trust me. I was like, I don't play favorites. She goes, why don't you ask some staff people? I said, you better believe I will. And so I asked about five random people. And I said, hey, do you think I play favorites? All five of them said, yeah, you do. I don't know where I would be if I didn't have people in my life that actually speak truth into me, help me to see things about myself that I can't really see. I really don't. Invite some people in your life and have them speak truth into you. And then the last thing, I want to encourage all of you, if you can, go to get some counseling. You know, I have an opportunity to connect with Pete quite a bit, and when I first started meeting with Pete Scazzaro, he said to me, Peter, think about counseling as going to an emotional spa. That's all it is. It's somebody who's going to help you to process your life and your trauma. Somebody who's dedicated, a professional, to help you to grow so that you can learn more about who you are, to grow in deeper self-awareness. An emotionally healthy person says yes to the practice 
of self-awareness and reflection. That's the first thing. Second, an emotionally unhealthy person often says no to the practice of cultivating their personal relationship with God. All right, they'll say no to practicing their personal relationship with God. Saul doesn't really spend the energy to nurture a personal relationship with God. Saul has a professional relationship with God, but he doesn't have a personal relationship with God. And it's very important because, especially if you're a leader in the church and people in my profession, we have a, this, you know what you're seeing right now? You're seeing a professional relationship with God right now up here. It doesn't mean I have a personal relationship with God just because I'm up here preaching the Bible and talking to you about some things about life and Jesus. And the critical thing for all of us is this. You can go through the motions of Christianity, but the real thing that you and I need to develop is our actual personal relationship with God. That you and I really have to say, you know what, I am going to actually nurture this personal relationship with God. And so the best way to do this, there, there are three things that really can help you to do this. That's helped me a lot. The first thing is this, slow down. Just slow down. Don't live such, an un, such a hurried life. Try to find ways in your life so that you don't go too fast in life. Because I've learned this over time. God will never speed up for you to minister to you. He's not about giving you spiritual fast food. He's always about giving you his spiritual food. But it requires you to slow down your life. So um, Dallas Willis says we have to learn to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in our life. How can you ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life? I really struggle with this, especially with somebody with ADHD. I'm always in a rush. I always need to go fast, right? And so I'll try to do this by like, you know, standing in lines that are longer, right? I won't drive in the fast lane. I'll drive in the slower lane. I try to do things to slow down, but you got to slow down your life so that you can connect with God in a personal way, right? The other thing is Sabbath, Shabbat. I don't know if you guys do this. But Sabbath is critical that you spend one day where you're actually not working, okay? That you're actually staying off the grid so that you can have a day where you're ceasing to work, resting, but you're also delighting. Like, what do you delight in today? God wants you to do that on your Sabbath. It's amazing because I, I pastor a church where there's a lot of young people as well. And when I ask them, like, what do you delight in? They don't know because they're working too much. I hope you will know what delights you and then you do that on, the, on your Sabbath day. It's a beautiful thing. And then the last thing that will really help you, that's really changed my life, is you got to find a soulmate. A soulmate. A soulmate is somebody from the same sex that you meet with on a regular basis at least twice a month, and you confess to them the darkest areas to your humanity. That you don't live with secrets anymore. That you actually invite some people, like one. I'll just say one if you don't have anyone. One person... And you invite them and you confess the darkest areas to your humanity. And you repent in front of them. James 5.16 says this, when you confess your sins to one another, what does it say? You will be what? Healed. Healed. Why do we confess our sins alone to God? If we really want to be healed, if you really want to encounter God's grace and mercy, it's always in the presence of someone else. I think the Catholics have it right. That they want you to go to a, to a priest and confess. Why is it that we as Protestants, we've taken away the sacred practice of sitting in front of someone, all right? And I think it should be best when it's a friend of you or somebody you love and care for, and you guys are mutually confessing your sins with one another. That's powerful because Jesus says, when two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there. So don't you want Jesus to be present in your confession? He may not be present when you're just doing it alone in your room. 
He's really present when there's somebody else in the room with you in his name, and you actually confess the darkest areas to humanity. Listen, the one thing I have joy in and peace in is that when I die, if I die tomorrow, I will have no secrets in my life. I'm fully known, man. And you don't know how freeing that is to know that I do not live with any secrets, that I'm not trying to pretend to be somebody that I'm not, that somebody has entered into the journey of my life and they know the darkest areas to my humanity and I know the darkest areas to theirs. I want to encourage you to think about finding a soulmate. It's an amazing practice that will help you to nurture your personal relationship with God because it's got to go beyond you just having a professional relationship with them. You've got to nurture and develop this personal relationship with God. And my one encouragement when you do meet with somebody and they confess, you always have to end that confession with, because you've confessed your sins to me today, your sins are forgiven. I always make sure my, part, my soulmate says that to me so that I know that I've received the mercy and the grace of God. Amen? Slow down. Shabbat. Soulmate. That's the second thing of nurturing this personal relationship with God. And then the third emotionally unhealthy spirituality uh, a person will say no to the practice of being broken through setbacks and difficulties, right? I mean, when you think about it, Saul is not going to allow God to break him. He just says no. He's not only saying no to reflection and self-awareness. He's not only saying no to cultivating a personal relationship with God, but he's like, uh-uh, I am not going to let you break me now through the setback and difficulty. And what does he do? He gets angrier. He gets more jealous, and he tries to kill David more, more, and more, all right? And so at the end of the day, you and I have gone through some hard things in life. I know you've gone through your share of stuff. My challenge for you is, will you let God break you? Will you let him break you through any setback or difficulties that you might have gone through? Because when you do that, what happens when God breaks us is that he really wants to break our desire for self-sufficiency. He really wants to help us to grow in deeper humility. And that doesn't happen unless we allow God to break us from the difficult challenges that life has thrown our way that we might be going through right now. I mean, the very first words that come out of Jesus' mouth is recorded in Matthew chapter 5 right, in the Beatitudes. And what does he say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, think about that for a moment. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that you're not going to encounter the kingdom of heaven unless there's a poverty in your spirit and my spirit. He says, you're not going to be truly happy, because that's the word for blessed in the Greek. You're not going to be happy unless there's a poverty in your spirit. So get this, unless there's this desire for you to allow God to break you through a difficult situation or a setback in your life. Why does God want to break you? Why does he want to break me through those moments? Because he wants to redeem you. That's why. God can't redeem you if you don't allow him to break you. And that's why in Hebrews 5.8, I mean, if you think about it, this is crazy. Jesus, it says, Jesus, the son of God. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. That's powerful. Jesus Christ learned obedience from what he suffered. If you let God break you, if you truly let him break you, and I hope maybe he'll do that today, of some hardships that you've gone through in your life, he'll redeem you, and you'll learn obedience from that. I want to show you a picture of my family. Uh, I have three adult kids now, so uh, do we have a picture of my family? There we are. There they are. That's my family. We took this in Easter uh, last year, and uh, the one on the left, that's Kayla. She's my middle child, but Christina is the oldest on the right. She's 22. Kayla's 19, and the boy is Christian, and that short little lady is my wife. All right, so that's the on family. 
And uh, you got a picture when my kids were really young. That's them. Look how cute they are. I mean, Christina, I think she was probably like nine or ten. Kayla, she doesn't even have teeth. Look at her. She looks so cute. And that's Christian over there. So those are my kids. But when my daughter was about eight years old, and I don't think this is when she was quite eight, but when she was eight, I really struggled with her. One of the things I struggled with is that uh, she would often come home in the beginning of school year. She would be like, Daddy, I have homework. You got to help me with my homework. And I was like, okay, I'll bring it over, honey. Let's do it. And we'd start working on her homework. And uh, for whatever reason, she just wouldn't get some basic math. She would just really struggle over that. And I just started to lose my patience because she couldn't get it. And I started to get angry at her. And I started to yell at her. And then we would read. And she would, for some reason, skip over certain words and simple articles. And I'm like, what are you doing? What's going on? Why are you skipping over this? And I did this. And it just got progressively worse and worse and worse. Many times in the beginning, she was happy to do homework with me, but then there was a time where she didn't even want to do it. She didn't even mention it, but I'd say, come on, do your homework. And I'd do it with her, and again, I just would be this awful version of myself, yelling at her, calling her stupid. What are you doing? How do you not know this? Who do you think you are? Like, come on. And it just overwhelmed me, and I know I was destroying her. I know I was creating trauma for her, but I didn't know how to stop it. I tried everything. I prayed before she came home. I slept because I get up early in the morning. I thought maybe because I was tired, you know, you get angry. And so I would sleep in the middle of the day so I can be prepared. I fasted. Nothing worked. I only became the worst version of myself. And then she took a, um, a state test that, you know, your kids have to take. And I got the scores, her math and her English. You know what her score was out of 100? 70. Yo, man, she's Asian, man. She's Korean. I was like a 70? And so I put so much pressure on this little girl, seeing tears falling onto her paper as she's doing her homework. I didn't know what to do. My good buddy, Alex, uh, he's one of my soulmates. He was over in New York, and he's traveled the world with me. We've done ministry together. He's come and spoken at a church. He stayed at my house all the time whenever he's in New New York. So he's seeing how I live my life with my children and stuff like that. And I just confessed to him. I said, Alex, I'm a, I'm a monster to Christina. I don't know what to do, man. I am destroying her. I know I'm creating this trauma for her. And he says to me, he says, Peter, you know, how do you, how do you deal with failure? And no one's ever asked me that question before. And I said, oh, that's a really interesting question you ask. I think how I deal when people fail me is, number one, I try to ignore it uh, because I don't want them to see my anger. Because they failed me. Like if a staff member failed me, I, I don't want to lash out on them. So I'll, I'll ignore it. I don't want to deal with it. Or the second route is I get really angry. He said, interesting. He said, I'm going to just share this with you, and I hope you don't get offended. I've been over your house plenty of times. I've slept over your house. I've noticed that you show Kayla and Christian a lot more physical affection than you show Christina. And I said, well, that's because Christina's growing up. She's turning into a woman. Like, it's weird to, like, hug her and kiss her on the lips. Like, it's just, she's she's turning into a woman. And he just looks at me, like, just so disturbed. He said, Peter, she's eight years old. Your daughter is eight years old. She's not a woman. You don't think she's realizing that you're showing Kayla and Christian more affection than you're showing her? I disagree with him because I usually disagree in the beginning to kind of keep face. I go home, I sleep, I wake up the next morning, and before I go to church, you know, I get up early, I'm in the shower, 
And God just shows me and he deals with me and he breaks me and he says, because your daughter has been failing you in school, you've shown her less affection. And I can't tell you how long, I don't, I don't, real, I don't remember how long I cried. I was probably about 20, 30 minutes. I was just crying in the shower, just being so broken by the reality of how messed up I am. I went upstairs afterwards and it was early in the morning and I woke her up. I said, honey, wake up, Christina, wake up. And I just apologized. I said, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry for being so angry with you with schoolwork. I'm so sorry if you felt like I didn't show you enough love. I was like, I love you. Will you please forgive me? And a great thing about an eight-year-old, they'll always forgive you if you ask them to. And then I said this to her. I said, honey, I might lose my cool again when I help you with your homework. But if I do, will you promise you'll say this one phrase? Daddy, you're doing it again. And I said, if you say that, I promise I will stop. Deal? She said, deal. And that day at church, she was standing next to me as I was greeting newcomers and things like that, and I was hugging her, kissing her on the lips. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I just love you. I want you to know how much I love you, honey. I really, really love you. Probably about six weeks or eight weeks later, she took a math test. And I don't want to brag, but she got a 96. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, kids. I was happy, but it broke me. It broke me because I hurt the one I love the most. I was hurting her so much. It was affecting her schoolwork. It was preventing her from excelling because she was so scared she was gonna disappoint me. The thing about emotional unhealthiness is that you don't end up hurting strangers you end up hurting the people you love the most. And so who are you hurting today? Who are you hurting today? If you don't grow in self-awareness, embracing that practice, if you don't grow in nurturing a personal relationship with God, if you don't grow in allowing God to break you through setbacks and difficulties, the unfortunate reality is that you will live your entire life hurting the people you love the most. And that's not the person Jesus Christ came and died for. There's a beautiful you, but if you got to let the Holy Spirit and Jesus come and impact that 90%, which is below the surface. My daughter graduated college in May, and she graduated summa cum laude. Yeah. So I want you to know, if I can change, you can change. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. So I want you to make that commitment because only you know how much emotional unhealthiness has hurt your family and the people you love. Only you know. Would you dedicate yourself now and say, Lord, I surrender myself. Would you allow him to maybe break you through a setback or a difficult that you have not allowed him to break you on so that you can learn obedience from even the things you've suffered? I want to give you a few moments to do that, and, uh, and then I'll just pray for us, and then we'll finish off the service. So just go to him right now.
I'm going to read for you Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, God, that you would show them that there is so much strength when they embrace their weaknesses. There is so much strength when they can live a life that's more vulnerable. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow them to grow in these practices, these habits of growing in self-awareness, inviting people to speak some truth into their life, embracing some silence to really process what they might be feeling, to having the courage to go see a counselor to help them to process this because you use people to help us to grow in self-awareness. Thank you for that, that we don't have to try to figure this out on our own. I also pray for those that they would devote themselves to really nurturing a personal relationship with you. That you would help them to grow in that. That they would take a Sabbath. They would slow down, but they would find somebody of the same sex and be willing to confess their darkest areas to their humanity. And lastly, God, I pray that you would allow my brothers and sisters to be broken through some setbacks and difficulties of their life. And as they do that, God, I pray that you would redeem them, bless them, show them the way, the path, so they would not grow weary and they would renew their strength. They would soar on wings like eagles. They would run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So bless this church. Bless these people that have made a commitment to growing in deeper emotional health. May it be a journey that transforms their life from the inside out where the people they love the most will benefit greatly from it, God. So thank you, Lord, for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. that you, we can allow yourself to feel what you need to feel right now. Um, that last story, I was just weeping death back there. It would have gotten me anyway, but I know his three kids well. I know Christina. So picturing little eight-year-old Christina not being able to do well on a test because of the pressure she felt. Man, it made me wish my own parents could have had a moment like that. But it makes me want us to take that kind of stuff seriously in our own lives and to do it in the spirit. I think one of the things I was just feeling in this is we must do this, That's we must, but must can be a weird word. Uh, must can be filled with shame. Uh, must can be filled with performance. Must can be filled with fear that if I don't do it, that it's, that it's, this isn't a must because we're bad people if we don't. This isn't a must because this is a checkbox. This is a must because God wants us to be healthy and whole. This is a must because we want to be safe, loving people for those who are in our lives. Um, it's a must because that 90% that's under the water is what's true about us. I was thinking of Psalm 139 where David ponders the goodness of God. And David says, 
from where could I flee from your spirit? I go to the heavens, your spirit's still going to be there. I can make my bed in the depths of hell and your spirit will still be there. You know, if you grew up with a fear view of God like I did, that actually sounds kind of scary. Where can I go from the presence of God? What David is saying is not that he's scared. What he's saying is, why bother running? I'm the only one that doesn't know about the 90%. God knows all about that 90% already. Why flee? Why flee? And so I'd like to, let's, 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 we just sang that beautiful song, Come to the Altar. And so this is one of those Sundays where I'd like us to like, it's okay if you got to go. It's okay if you want to talk. But like, let's do all that outside of the sanctuary today. So if you're ready to not be sitting in this, like no shame, just like move on out and uh, we'll go hang out there by the bridge table or if you got to go, get to go. But let's leave this as a space for a little bit. I think sometimes the first and most important step is to just speak truth. To say, God, I'm coming to the altar today. You can physically come up here if you want during this time. You can sit in your chair and symbolically come to the altar. But I think just to even say, God, I have hurts inside of me. I have pain inside of me. I have these swirling thoughts inside of me that I can't make sense of. I have this constant desire to do stuff that I know is not good for me and is not good for others, but it's very much there. I got all these things inside of me. If we can just come to the altar and say, God, I need to do this with some people at some point too, maybe a trained professional, maybe a friend, but today I'm going to do it with you. Let's just keep this space uh, for those who are going to do that, all right? So again, to be clear, when we give the benediction here, let's those who aren't going to stay in here, let's go out to the bridge area, hang out there. But if you want to just kind of stay in here and if there's a couple of elders that can stick around if anybody needs prayer, that would be great. And so um, you can stay seated for this benediction, but let's just hold the other. But whatever way you want to receive this final word, let us, let us remember that God knows you better than you know yourself. God already sees all there is to see about you. So that 90% that's under the, under the water, God knows about it way better than we do. And there's freedom and liberation when we can bring that into God's presence. So let us take seriously that invitation to come into God's presence with all of our stuff and to hopefully meet the healing of God in that place. And all God's people said, amen. Let's move out if you're not staying.